Welcome to the Arrive Podcast, the U.S. Immigration Law Podcast for Canadians. I am Jeremy Richards, and I'm here with my business partner and fellow immigration attorney, Christine Jerusik. Together, we are Richards and Jerusik Immigration Law, practicing U.S. immigration law from our offices in Buffalo, New York, and Toronto, Ontario. And we help Canadians to work and live in the United States. If you haven't already, please follow and like us on your podcast app. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, uh, Richards and Jerusik Immigration Law. And follow us and like us on, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram uh, for regular updates on U.S. immigration law uh, that we have created just for Canadians. Uh, in addition, on our website, there is a resources tab where you can subscribe to a weekly newsletter where you will receive all our recent updates and posts about U.S. immigration law as well. So we are back in the office in Buffalo, New York, uh, after what I think will go down as the most intense uh, winter storm Buffalo has ever experienced. They always talk about the blizzard of 77, but from all accounts and what I've and what we went through in the past um, several days here in Buffalo, it looks like that might be surpassed. So uh, I guess our, our thoughts and prayers for those who are, are recovering from the blizzard and have gone through it. It was it was crazy. I'm for one, I'm glad to be back in the office. It's tough to be cooped <laughs> up with all those kids for, and not able to go anywhere. Um, we left on Thursday and now we're back Wednesday the next week. Um, finally in off. No, wait, it's Thursday. So yeah, it's Thursday to Thursday. Week, so right. a full week. Oh man. I, I forgot what day it is. It's been so long. Oh, we had Christmas in there too. So. Yeah. And in the house, not able to leave. Like in my <laughs> neighborhood, we hunkered down Thursday night and then they finally cleared our road so we could actually drive and lifted travel restrictions, uh, Monday night. So Tuesday morning was the first time we were able to leave, but here in the city where our office is, they lifted those restrictions last night. Yeah, at midnight. So yeah. we, we didn't even know if we'd be in here yesterday. So it is. it was a historic storm. There's a lot of damage. A ga- my favorite gas station down the street <laughs> collapsed. Who, who the, has a favorite oh, gas station? I do. <laughs> <laughs> but it's devastating, though. Is a refugee, or an immigrant family that owned that gas station. And it, the whole thing is, is just collapsed. Um, so feel for them in their business that's going to suffer because of that. And that's, I mean, those are the smallest stories of this blizzard. Yeah. Uh, we could, we could just have a whole discussion about uh, people, and, you what know, happened. People say, you know, Oh, they have insurance and you know, it'll get taken care of by insurance. But sometimes the ramifications go further than that. I have a client that's lost her, lost her job and she's been laid off because uh, there was some looting. All oh, the I guess, looting that area. led to the closing yeah. of the family it, dollar. It, it closed, it closed her store and now she doesn't have a job and she's the breadwinner in that family. So now there's, I have a client who, who, who doesn't have any income for her family. And yeah. And that's a, I guess a, a side of effect this, of the yeah. blizzard because people were so selfish as to go loot and pillage these stores and now they're closing and they're not, who knows if they'll ever reopen. Why would they if this happens to them? Um, so uh, it was it was definitely a, a storm to remember. But we are back in the office, back, uh, you know, full service here in the office and, and looking forward to the new year. So um, today we're going to follow the same format as we did last time. We have some things we want to talk about. 
a lot of good questions that were submitted uh, that people want us to answer for them. Um, ones that we necessarily, you know, we could answer over the phone, but they're ones that we may or may not be able to provide uh, legal services for, or they just don't want legal services. They were just asking a question. Uh, so we decided we could answer it here on the podcast. One one update, though, with, and this is really the only update since the last time we spoke or we uh, had the podcast, and that's with prevailing wages with the Department of Labor. We received one actually today uh, that took six months. So that's Yay. a lot <laughs> faster than the one year mark, right? Yeah. So that's that's headed in the right direction. Um, not not quite back to the you know two to three month mark it was, but hey, uh, any progress is good progress there. So it's nice to have certainty too to be able to advise people. Hey, you know this process is going to take this long. I mean, regardless of how long it is, you just want to be able to tell people this is what to expect. Um, so it's nice to know. Yeah. Um, but other than that, not much else is going on. I mean, there are some other updates, but they don't pertain uh, to Canadians. So we won't go into those. Um, but we do have several questions. So we'll, we'll get through these as, but the best we can. We may not get to them all. Um, but we'll, we'll get started off with, with the shortest question here. Because some of these <laughs> questions, it's, it's a novel. Uh, and some, some good stuff to talk about, though. The first one is, my case is in administrative processing. What should I expect? So this opens up a, a big, I guess, line of discussion about what is administrative processing. So if you're applying for an immigrant or non-immigrant visa and you're doing that uh, through a consulate or embassy um, and they're done reviewing your case, you've had your interview, they can do further processing on your case. And that's what is referred to as administrative processing. Now, a consular officer can only do two things for your case. They can either approve it or deny it. So it's it's kind of scary if you get put into administrative processing and you don't understand what it means. Because if you go check your case status, it will actually say your case has been refused. And it's been refused for administrative processing reasons uh, in this case, which doesn't mean it's been denied yet. It doesn't mean it's been approved either. It means that the consular officer, for some reason, needs to do more research or wants more evidence before they make a decision on your case. Right. You should look at it as we've refused to make a decision to this point instead of, you know, we're refusing to approve your case. That's a good way to put it. So they're reserving that decision till later. The bad thing about administrative processing, and this is the difficult thing to tell anybody that's placed in administrative processing, is number one, a lot of the time, they don't have to give you a reason why you're in administrative processing. They can just put you in it mm-hmm. um, without a, a detailed explanation as to why. And you're not supposed to make an inquiry until at least 180 days has passed since you've been placed in administrative process, processing. In other words, they have six months in order to make a decision before you can even inquire or seek further assistance on your case if it's administrative processing. Six months, which is a long time, especially after you've probably already wait, waited 24 months, 12 months, however long you've waited to get to that point and then get it put in this black hole. That's what we, this is the black hole of immigration administrative processing and you don't know how long you're going to be in there that said 
for standard administrative processing cases, we see them typically, you know, two to three months you're out of mm -hmm. administrative processing. Usually, yeah. Um, but they could, and the good ones, I think the good administrative processing cases are the ones where they actually tell you, hey, we need a better copy of your birth certificate. Or, hey, it looks like you've traveled a lot recently. We want to detail the count of your travels outside of the country. How long you, outside of, you know, where have you visited? you know, in the last 10 years, right. uh, where have you worked? Um, I mean, a lot of times they just issue the standard security questionnaire where they're asking you a, a, a long list of questions. Where have you worked? Where have you lived? Yeah. With a lot of, in there, they're looking for additional detail to be added. So if you do end up in administrative processing and they send you something like that, either by email or, you know, a piece of paper from the consulate, you're going to want to respond to that with as much detail as possible. So and as soon as possible so you can, yeah. you know, give them what they need so they can make a decision. Right. Get the clock start ticking again towards that six months. And it, you need to pay attention if you do get put in administrative processing and they do ask for additional information or clarification on, on whatever it might be, you need to make sure you're consistent with what you've said as well. Uh, in the past, because a lot of the questions they ask you in administrative processing, the security, these additional security questions, they were already asked on your DS-160 or your DS-260. Mm -hmm. uh, so they could be looking for discrepancies in what you've said in your interview, what you what you first put in your DS-160 or 260, and how you reply to these questions. And I like how you called them discrepancies, because the officer may see them as something more like misrepresentation <laughs> than... They like to call it misrepresentation yeah then discrepancy i mean um so you got to be careful there you got to make sure all your information lines up so the you know that's why we're always saying the truth is the best way to move forward with these and if you start with the truth then it's easy to answer those questions exactly, right yeah you're just being consistent with what the truth is you're not mm -hmm. hiding anything but this is where if you are trying to hide something they're going to catch you because it's hard to stay consistent uh, and that's why in, in court right they like to read back people's transcripts because it's hard to remember what you said yeah well <laughs> i say just, well last time you said this is that right well i don't know i don't remember right? i mean i i just had a client um just as just by way of example that is completing their ds forms and um just kind of out of the blue even though we'd already asked questions about this uh, hadn't been disclosed before um, oh, by the way, I just, uh, you know, didn't tell you this before, but I did have a visa. Um, I came into the U.S., you know, 15 years ago, and I stayed for a few years after that. I never left on, you know, I was supposed to work for this person or do this thing, and I never did it. Um, I just ended up staying in the United States for a number of years after that. Is that going to impact my application? Um, you know, I, my pass, my name has changed on my passport since then because I've been married or... Um, you know, there's another reason the names change. So I don't think they're going to know it's me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we've all heard that before. Until they know it's you. Until they know it's you. Yeah. So the, the advice I gave this client was, of course, we're going to disclose that information now that, it, you know, thank you for telling us. It's important to, put, to be honest and put that on there. And frankly, I don't think it's going to negatively impact his application because the amount of time that has passed since then. But even if it was something that was sooner, we would definitely want to disclose that. Um, you know, sometimes there's other options to get around these things or they don't negatively impact your application. So it's important to be honest. What you said right there is, I think, the most important. Most of these things are so minor that they're not going to impact it. And people overthink and they get worried because it's a stressful process. And they say, well, I got to, 
you know, traffic infraction when I was 16 years old and they put me in the cop car, but it was dismissed. But I'm not going to talk about it. Well, yeah, you are. You were arrested. It may have been dismissed, Mm -hmm. but they're going to have a record of that. You need to be truthful. It's not going to impact you whatsoever if you disclose it. But guess what? If you don't disclose it, you just misrepresented and Mm -hmm. they could deny you for fraud. Right. And the problem with misrepresentation, well, there's many problems. I'm going to say there's one. (laughs) But one of the problems with misrepresentation is once the officer thinks that you are being misleading, they're going to discredit anything you tell them. Mm-hmm. So now all of a sudden, everything you say is a lie, not just the one. So don't go there. So if you are administrative processing, there's we have four things that that we suggest, four steps to follow, things you can do if you're putting in administrative processing. First, unless there is an absolute humanitarian uh, emergency, serious illness, injury, death of immediate family member, we're talking extreme humanitarian reasons, they're not going to expedite your case right. out of administrative processing. Yeah. So you need to wait at least 180 days since your interview or since you provided the additional information that they, they requested from you before you make any inquiries. Otherwise, you're just going to delay your case. Um, after that 180 days has passed, if you make an inquiry and they still haven't replied, then you wait 30 days from that request. And at that point, you can then recontact them and ask, hey, it's been 30 days since my last request. What's going on? If there's still no action, then the advice they give is just to follow up every month, every 30 days until there's a decision on your case to keep reminding them, hey, I'm here, I'm waiting. Then if that doesn't work, you can take further action if you want. Um, you could contact your congressional representative uh, to seek assistance mm-hmm. there. Um, and there's also, you could sue the government to get if, to force them to make a decision on your case. And those, those are extreme situations. Um, but if you find yourself in that situation, then those are possible alternatives that you can seek. But for most people, administrative processing, I would say, is, is more of an annoyance than anything. Because they put you in there and they can keep you in there as long as they really want to. Uh, but if you wait, typically you're going to be cleared within that six months and you mm-hmm. have nothing to worry about. Just be honest and give them what they need. Okay, next question. And we were discussing this one a little bit before we started uh, the podcast. This individual said uh, it's a dual citizen, so American-Canadian citizen applying for their son's N600K. If you don't know what an N600K is, that's a certificate of citizenship uh, for a child of a U.S. citizen born abroad. Um, and here it says that they, so the U.S. citizen does not meet the five-year physical presence requirement for the N600. So if you're passing your citizenship to your child and you live outside of the country, you have to meet certain requirements. It just doesn't automatically pass. Uh, you need to show as the U.S. citizen parent that you meet, that you spent at least five years inside the United States. And that varies. It could be a different time frame depending on when. Right, it could be uh, 10 ch- years. Or it depends when the child was born. But typically in this day and age, since uh, you know children are 
aging out at 18. So you have to do this before they're 18. That's number one. So typically you need to have spent at least five years in the United States. Two of those need to be, be after you turned 14 years old and all of them need to be before the child was born. Yep. And if you meet that physical presence requirement, then you file what's called an N600K. And the other thing to keep in mind, if it's an N600K, you have to be residing outside of the United States um, in the scenario we're going to talk about. And, if you and don't, by you, we mean you and the child needs to be in your legal and physical custody as the U.S. citizen parent. Correct. And here the question is, is can I use my father's physical presence or in this case, the, the grandfather of the child that they're petitioning for because the father doesn't meet it. He's, and he's asking, well, can I use my father's presence in the United States since I don't meet it? Yeah, we get this question a lot because there's plenty of um, U.S. citizens that were possibly that were born here or they achieved their U.S. citizenship through the citizenship of their parent but they never really lived in the United States for five years or more at any point in time. Happens in their a life. lot. Or they lived here till they were three and then their family moved yep. to Canada or another country. You had um, cross-border relationships, right? So yep. one of the parents was a U.S. citizen, get married to a Canadian, and then the, the child's born in Canada. Yeah, and they all moved to, you know, they moved to Canada at a certain point. So, um, you know, you really need to talk to a lawyer to figure out when, whether you qualify and then using that grandparents physical presence is something you can do in, in a lot of cases. So if uh, grandma or grandpa has proof that they lived in the United States and they just need to meet that physical presence, same physical presence requirement. So it doesn't change for them. It needs to be five, five years, years, two yep. of which were after the age of 14. And all of those years need to be before the child was born. Um, if you can prove that for a grandparent in the case of a situation for an N600K, that may meet the requirements as well. Yes. And uh, so the answer is yes, you can use a grandparent mm-hmm. in this situation. Child must be under 18. All of those requirements yeah, must there's be a lot met. Of factors, and we're talking right? in generalities here. Mm-hmm. We're not, we're not giving, quoting the specific law because it does change depending on when someone was born and other factors. So before you run with this, make sure you clarify the specific law uh, that applies to your situation. Also, just saying that you lived here for five years or your father lived here or grandfather lived here for five years, that's not sufficient. You can't just say, oh yeah, my dad, he's never lived outside of the U.S. He's lived there his whole life. Well, prove it. And they will require proof. You need to have school records, uh, religious records, social security records, uh, tax documents, employment records, uh, lease, utility bills, whatever you can prove, use to prove that during that five-year time period or the time period in question, Mm. that the person was actually here. You can't just say it. You need to back it up with physical documents. And I think that's where a lot of people run into situations where they can't do it. With this individual, uh, they specifically said that the father is, is, is deceased. That could be a problem. It could become difficult um, to get those records if the individual you're, whose presence you're relying on is no longer living. Well, some of those records may not exist anymore. But in some cases, it actually can be easier because then you can do a little bit of genealogy and you can go to the National Archives or the census or wherever it might be and pull the information you need. So it can get a little bit tricky if someone has deceased and you're trying to rely on their physical presence because you have to back it. Mm-hmm. with physical documents. Right. Okay, on to the next one. Let's see here. 
I guess we're going to just jump into the fire with this one. I haven't read it yet. I put it on here for us to, <laughs> to answer it. So hopefully it's a good one and we know the well, answer. Hopefully we know the answer. That's <laughs> <laughs> if not, oh, well, hello, I am a Canadian by birth. Um, and just to clarify, so birth is important um, because birth can determine how long you can wait. You might have to wait for a green card. So both your citizenship and where you were born apply in immigration cases. So that's why uh, a lot of times we say Canadian by birth or Canadian um, through and naturalization. I think, asked, I think we asked that question on our intake form on our website always, too, don't we? Yeah, I had a call yesterday with an individual and Canadian now. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm going to get a TN and then go through the green card. Can you help with all that? Like, yeah, absolutely. But then I always have to check myself because... I can't assume they were born in Canada. I'm like, I'm like, wait a sec, but where were you born? Yeah. He said, oh, I was born in Pakistan. I'm like, oh, okay, you're fine. <laughs> Pakistan is one of the countries where there's typically not a long wait time. But if you're India or China, you could be in for a long wait. So birth is important. So Canadian by birth, job offer to work in the United States. I'm hoping to go to the U.S. Oh, so this is, this is a good one. I'm hoping to go to the, to, to the U.S. to work and live with my fiance. The job is administrative in nature, and although I've taken some university and college courses, I had no degree in any of the fields listed for the TN. I'm looking for a consultation to confirm what my what step for myself and my potential employer need to take in terms of paperwork or sponsorship. Is this something you handle through your firm? And if so, what are the next steps? I'm looking forward to helping this matter. So we have two questions here, right? Um, one is... The individual is uh, has a fiance who's a U.S. citizen, mm-hmm. and the other is is how do I go there to live and work with my fiance? So here, you know, fiance implies eventual marriage, right? Uh, so if we just take that, let's just take that question out first. Can you come into the United States as a Canadian visitor, fiance to a, a U.S. citizen? What are your options? What can you do? Well, if you come in as a visitor, you're entered the United States legally. That's typically the first step for immigration. You need to do everything legally. So if you entered legally in the United States, you're engaged to a U.S. citizen, and you decide to get married somewhere down the road, then there is a there is a step through marriage. There's a pathway to, yeah, to a green card through that family sponsorship process. Through marriage to a U.S. citizen. So mm-hmm. that is possible. Now, the other one actually is more difficult here, which you think the green card would be more complicated process. But here, hey, you're, you marry a U.S. citizen, there's a direct path to, citizen, to green card, mm-hmm. uh, permanent residency, and eventually citizenship. That's much easier to deal with than this other question of, I want to work in the U.S. Um, it looks like an administrative position. And we get with this, an unrelated we get this a degree. lot. You know, people are in relationships, cross-border relationships, and they're not, maybe not ready for marriage yet. They're engaged or they're just dating. And, um, you know, they want to see if the relationship's, you know, going to work out. So they want to live together for a little bit first. And they want to come to the United States, maybe get a job, um, you know, so that they can, can be working and making money while they're here um, with the person, their significant other. Um, and, you know, with the intention that maybe they're going to get married down the road, but they don't know yet, Right. Um, that sounds kind of like this intake. We, we get a lot of calls like that. Um, and frankly, you know, it, it's a difficult situation because in a lot of cases like this one, it sounds like she may not be qualified 
Yeah, administrative roles. She, I don't know. Yeah, administrative is, roles do yeah. not qualify for TN visa status. Just, it's that plain and simple. They don't. Yep. There's no profession for administrative staff. Right. Receptionist, secretary, whatever it might be, that doesn't exist. Right. And you the fact that you're in a relationship that. with a U.S. person doesn't. doesn't ch- it doesn't change that. It doesn't help the situation. So. And people um, think it does. That's a good point. They think, well, I do have a family member in the U.S. or a house in the U.S. or this relationship. Oh, yeah, the How's house, that help I have me get a, a residential visa? property. No, it doesn't. Yeah, no. And unfortunately, that's not a factor that's taken into account. No, exactly. It's so not going to qualify you. So it's a tough situation, this one. It sounds like that the plan to come in and just work, uh, you know, a, a job for a while and see if the relationships, you know, then eventually get married. Um, that's not a pathway to, you know, to a green card. You really need to look at that relationship as the source of, of the being in the United States. And that un, in the United States means marriage. Yep. And I will say for Canadians, and this is the way around this fiance visa, fiance visa was really designed for people that don't have access to each other. So they could see whether or not that relationship works. So the typical example I give is you're in the US and your fiance's, um, you know, in the Philippines. Well, that's a long distance relationship where you're not able to spend a lot of time together and determine whether or not this is the right fit. So they have the fiance visa where you can petition that person to come to the U.S. for a 90-day time period and you can see if it works. Then if it works, you get married and then you petition that person who's now your spouse to stay permanently in the U.S. with you. Well, Canadians and Americans can see each other quite frequently. For For six months. At a time. Yeah. So if you're a Canadian and you want to see if this works, you know what? Come spend the summer in the United States with that individual. You can stay up to six months. If you determine, you know what? I'm here as a visitor. I love this person. We want to get married. You can get married and you can, there is a pathway from a visitor visa through marriage to a U.S. citizen to get a green card Mm -hmm. without having to go through the hassle of that fiance visa. If you do it right, Uh, there are things you need to take into account, but it is possible. So- Definitely. And I think another thing we need to mention with this is, um, and we get this in calls sometimes is, you know, we're, you know, I'm my spouse or my, they say my husband or wife, but it's a common law husband or wife. It's not a, yes, it's not not recognized in the U S right. So common law, although it's very prevalent in Canada, um, and is completely, you know, a legitimate, you know, recognition of your couplehood in Canada it's under the U.S. immigration system get, is given absolutely zero recognition. So we've had to, in order for spouses to immigrate to the United States, told people that they have to get married after living together for like 20 years. And they're like, this is crazy. <laughs> we've never thought we'd have to get married, but now we actually have to get a marriage certificate. I mean, we've yep. been together for 20 years yep. and we're like, yep, but that's we need that piece of paper in order to proceed with the immigration process. It's one of the required documents. Um, so that common law relationship really needs to be solidified in, in a legal, formal legal way of marriage certificate, whether you like it or not, uh, if, if the immigration process is going to be done through your spouse. Yeah, and that applies not only to the green card process, right, but dependent visa. So if you're on an a TN visa and they have the dependent TD visa oh, right, for a spouse yeah, and that children. Comes up then too. Yeah, it comes up a lot there. 
where, oh, I'm I'm coming down on a work visa. I want my spouse to come. Oh, yeah. by the way, we're common law. And we're and when <laughs> my answer is, oh, by the way, we need usually, to get married. It usually happens when we say, okay, so what you need to do is just bring your marriage certificate. And they're like, oh, we don't have one of those. <laughs> yeah, we've been living together for 30 years. I know. Well, now make it official. Yeah, it's, it's the, it, you know, may seem antiquated. Do you feel like you're a marriage counselor sometimes? Well, I not, do. <laughs> uh, maybe sometimes <laughs> not just for that reason we could go up we could have a whole a whole like month a year-long episodes of uh marriage counseling yeah we got the the speed dial on for the matrimonial attorneys oh, that geez. we refer to so <laughs> some things we hear that we really don't need to know when it comes to immigration all right so next question this is an easy one quick one but it's one that people need to know. And this goes back to the dependent visa situation. So an L1 visa, my work is providing an L1 visa with, and with it, my spouse is going to enter the U.S. on an L2 visa. Wanted to know what the process is in ensuring that they have all of the eligible paperwork to work in the U.S. as a dependent. So the L1 visa is an intercompany transfer. So this means that this individual works for the Canadian company will use, and they're transferring that individual from the Canadian company to a U.S. entity mm -hmm. that shares ownership with that Canadian entity. That's an L1A visa. Um, and now a spouse then qualifies for what's called an L2 visa. And when that spouse is admitted at a port of entry, they will put an S on there, L2S, which means L2 spouse. That's all you need. All you need is that I-94 card stamp that proves that it's a spouse, that S signifies authorization to work. You're, you're dating yourself, Jeremy. They don't, they don't do stamps and okay. cards anymore. <laughs> I use the old lingo, <laughs> but they will, but they will annotate it as an S saying they that will. you are a spouse. Yeah. When you look up your electronic I-94 online, it should say L1A spouse or, or L1 spouse. Yeah. I think it says L1S, right? L2S. L2S, you're yes. right. Yeah, L2S. L2S. So, but it is electronic. It's no longer physical. If the S is not there, though, that's a problem. It is. Because L2 could just mean you're a child. Well, mm -hmm. as a child, you're not authorized to work. Only a spouse is. So the answer to this question is, well, once that individual, once your spouse enters the U.S., they will be, they will be issued that L2S as a spouse. That is work authorization. Automatic. You don't need to take any additional steps. Well, in the past, a spouse had to file for an additional document before working, which was called employment authorization document or an EAD card, uh, before they could work. They eliminated that requirement. So simply being admitted in L2 status as a spouse automatically authorizes the spouse to work, to get a Social Security card and a Social Security number in the U.S., no additional steps need to be taken. I guess the additional step might be get a social security number because a lot yeah. of employers require that. But there is no additional filing or anything that needs to be done if it's a Canadian. And I'm we're talking to Canadians here. Uh, if you're a Canadian spouse, you show up at a port of entry with your passport, proof of your spouse's L1A visa, proof of your marriage. Again, can't be common law. Mm -hmm. You must have a marriage certificate. And then the border will automatically admit you in L2S status. With that, you can go to a, a social security office here in the United States, apply for your social security number, then you're good to go. You can go work for any employer. And that's the great thing about being a dependent and having that dependent status is their work authorization is blanket. 
it's not tied to your employer or a specific employer. They can work anywhere. Mm -hmm. They could go work at the gas station down the street if they wanted. Uh, it's not restricted. It, you in, in the gas stations. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the 7-Eleven. <laughs> it has a gas station. <laughs> Those are my favorite places. Um, <laughs> uh, you, you can work anywhere you want, which is great because it's not restrictive. You can, If they want to go work somewhere and just earn some extra money, go for it. So, no, there's that's not an extensive process, not difficult to do. Prove you're married, they'll get their stamp, and then they're on their way. All right. Here is another one. This one's lengthy, but this individual contacted me directly and asked that we answer this question, so we are going to do it. Um, so... Bear with me as I go through this because this one can be, this one's a little bit complicated, but it is one we do often receive um, because, and, and we'll get into the, the details here. So it says, Jeremy, I have discussed with you about a business for an E2 visa. So in other words, an investor for a Canadian citizen. My son is 19 years old and is studying in the United States and will be on an F-1 student visa. My family immigration sponsored by my father's has a priority date of November 7th, 2011. So this is an Indian-born individual we're talking about. And how we talked about priority dates earlier, this is where it comes into play. So they've been waiting since 2011 uh, to complete the green card process. So now we're talking about 11 years uh, that they've been waiting. We are all Canadian citizens. My question is, and now we're getting to the question, is if I will maintain B1, B2 status, in other words, Canadian visitor, so you're not going to get a B1, B2, you're just admitted as a Canadian visitor, and we'll return to Canada, if I plan according to the priority date and enter again as a visitor visa. So in other words, he's saying, I'm going to go back and forth between Canada and the United States, and we're going to use our visitor status our visa-exempt Canadian says to visit our son as he goes to school in the United States. Great, you can do that. As long as you're spending less than six months a year in the United States, you can visit your family members, even if it's your son at college, all you want. Mm -hmm. uh, and what he's saying here is what we want to do is we want to time one of our visits so that when we're in the United States, that priority date is current. In other words, that when it becomes current, you can request a green card. And that's what they're saying. We want to come. We want to prioritize it. So when we're there, it's current so that we can stay in the United States and do the process within the United States and avoid processing through the consulate because it's faster. A lot of people want to skip the consulate because you can do it quicker and get your green card while you remain in the United States uh, without having to leave and come back. So the answer is yes, you can do that. If you time it properly... And you come in as a, as a visitor, and then while you're in the United States, the priority date becomes current, then yes, you can do what's called adjust, and we've talked about that in previous episodes, where you change from your non-immigrant visa as a visitor to a green card without having to leave the United States, as long as it's done correctly. And there are additional timing issues when you're entering as a visitor, because a visitor is a non-immigrant visa. So not only do you have to time the priority date becoming current at the right time, but you also have to time 
When is it that uh, you can file after entering as a visitor to make sure you don't have an, an immigrant intent issue as well? So the answer is yes, uh, you can do that. Um, and another another possibility here is this individual asked about the E2. Well, another way to do it, and I, the way I would probably suggest over entering as a visitor would be get yourself the E2 visa. If you have an investment in the U.S. or a business, come on the E2 visa you can be here full time on the E visa while you're managing your business. Mm -hmm. Then when it becomes current, then go from E2 to green card. Either way works. I like the E2 better because you don't have the travel restrictions with the B1, B2. You don't have to manage the time inside the U.S., time outside the U.S. You also don't have to worry about the employment issues either. If you have your own business, you can work and manage your business, spend as much or a little time in the United States as you want. Then when a priority date becomes current, then you can do the same thing and you can adjust to, to a green card. So either scenario works. All right. I think this, so we will do one more question. Hello, I am a Canadian by birth. Oh, wait, did I already answer this one? I think you did. I did. I okay. Like a repeat. Rerun. This is, rerun. We'll <laughs> skip that one. Oh, no, because we already... Oh, no, this is a good one. This one's very long, and I'm going to cut a lot of it out, but it's one we a question we hear all the time. So this is a Canadian, raised, born and raised in Canada, with a long-distance relationship with an American citizen. How often do we hear that? A lot. Mm -hmm. I've successfully visited my girlfriend in the United States twice, alone and once with family while I was a student. But this past time trying to visit, uh, I attempted my ver girlfriend again, but this time for three to four months, which is a long time. So that when you're asking for that long time in the U.S., they're going to be looking at your past visits and see how much time you've been spending here instead of two to three weeks like you have done before. I was refused at the border due to several factors, and these factors are common. I came with two oversized bags. Well, if you're coming with a lot <laughs> of luggage, you're going to be assuming you're staying for a long time, right. possibly longer than four months. No return ticket, no, no concrete return date, no funds in my bank account to support my trip, no job, no home under my name, <laughs> no financial statements. At the end of my conversation at secondary with CBP, after being given a list of things I could bring to show my ties and having my fingerprints saved, I asked what I could do, and the officer sarcastically said, yeah, I could try again in five minutes for all he cared. And well, that's, that is very sarcastic. Um, at that time, I was frustrated and emotional and didn't take it as sarcasm, bad idea, and gathered as many as my financial statements as possible, proving had more funds then the cash I was bringing and a return ticket tried again and was, and at that point was refused again and withdrew the application for admission. Uh, and we could have told you ahead of time that you would have been refused trying to return, you know, that soon uh, after being refused. Since then, I started a job in Canada. Uh, and now wants to go back and visit the girlfriend in the United States with some more concrete plans. Common question. And this is a common scenario, too, where somebody tries to enter the United States to go visit. This is someone who does not listen to our podcast. <laughs> well, um, or the border officer who told them 
straightforward, <laughs> come back with these items, right? Yeah. And typically, if you're being refused, you're not going back the same day and maybe not the next day either. Time cures. Time cures most immigration issues, especially if it's an intent issue. Right. Uh, the magic number, and this is not what most people are going to hear, is 12 months. Mm-hmm. If you were told not to come back for a while, well, the officer means don't come back for a while, uh, right. especially if you spent a long time in the U.S., six months or even more in the U.S., they're going to say, we don't want to see you for at least a year. At that point, they're satisfied that you do live in Canada, you're working there, you have ties. Right. If you come back any sooner, you're probably going to get refused unless you do have a legitimate reason to come. You can prove that it's temporary. And then the list that this individual is referring to is what we would refer to as a non-immigrant intent list that the border officer hands you. Mm-hmm. Well, that list, if you read through the list, it says six months of bank statements, six months of pay statements, six months of utility bills. If you don't have that with you showing that for the last six months that you have these concrete ties to Canada, that you have a job, that you're going to school, that you have a home, that you have health insurance, all of those things that tie you to Canada they're not going to entertain your readmission to the U.S. Even if you have all of that and you just spent several weeks or months in the United States and you're coming back and trying to be readmitted for another long trip, they're going to tell you 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 need to turn around. Mm -hmm. You don't live in the United States. Even though you have this ease of access to the United States as a Canadian, you do not have the right to just come and stay as long as you want whenever you want. You still need to maintain your ties to Canada, and you're still a visitor. Absolutely. I agree with every with all of that. And we get lots of people who call and are shocked uh, that they were refused entry to the United States. And they say things like, I'm Canadian. I have a right to enter. I can be there for six months. I don't know what the problem is. Um, but you don't have a right to enter, and you don't have to be admitted for six months you are a foreign national trying to enter a sovereign nation and you cannot just show up and expect to come in every single time because you want to. Um, you got to have the evidence to convince and properly show the officer that you don't intend to stay. So if you're coming for a two to three month visit and you're a snowbird and you, you've done the same visit for the past you know, 15 years and you show up with your, your RV on the back of your car and you say, yep, here I am again coming. They can see from your travel history that, yep, you come for two to three months every year and you go back home to Canada and and they can see that. But if you're a a young person who says I'm engaged to a U.S. citizen or I'm married to a U.S. citizen and you show up with all of your things um, and I'm coming with an indefinite period of stay or I'm staying for a few months, but it might be longer, you know, might extend it. don't have a job it. or anything I to go back to. Where are you to? working, not working right now? Yeah. I took a, I took a sabbatical because I want to go hang out in the U.S. for a while. Oh, I sold my condo. Yeah, this is, yeah. and you got your cat in the back seat. That's not animals, looking good. Yes, <laughs> animals are a huge trigger for some reason. They're like, wait, you're bringing your animal? Must be permanent. Yeah, so, you know, th- these are things that uh, will get you stopped at the border and turned right back around into Canada and will you know that that travel plan is out the window for at least the next I would say three to six months before you should longer. try again. Yeah, if not longer, depending on the situation. Yeah, so be careful. Don't take it for granted that uh, you're Canadian. You just come to the U.S. whenever you want because you can, as long as you do it right. Mm-hmm. Right, we can go to Canada whenever we want to, as as long as we abide by the rules. Doesn't mean we can just go and work and stay in Canada without proper authorization, though. Uh, so make sure your activities that you're doing 
are acceptable. Also, the time frame you're spending here is acceptable. What you're bringing, right? If you're bringing tools of the, of the trade with you, they're not going to believe you're visiting. If you got a big old toolbox and <laughs> you're uh-huh. coming down to what, what's the toolbox for? Uh, yeah, I'm going to work on my property. I mean, or, I think we've heard all of the different trade. We, you know, laptops, video equipment. Um, Photography equipment. Your work truck. <laughs> Your work truck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not going to fly, yeah. right? If you're bringing baggage with you of any nature, it's going to be looked at, and they're going to use that to determine whether or not uh, it signals you might be doing something other than what you say you're doing, or that your stay is going to be protracted, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have the right authorization to do what it is that you want to do, so... Be careful before you come to the United States. Make sure you're authorized to do what it is that that you say you're doing. Uh, Thank you for all the questions that you've submitted. We love them. Um, We'd love to continue addressing questions on on future podcasts. So if you do have a question we haven't answered or you just have one that's specific to your scenario and you want us to cover it on the podcast, we'd love to hear it and we'd love to talk about it. So go ahead and email those over. uh, Get them to us. Uh, and we'd love to address them on the podcast. And you can email those questions directly through our website. So if you just go to uh, Richards and Jerusalem website, you'll see where you can submit questions to the podcast. We'd love to we'll love to hear those questions. Thank you for tuning in today. If you haven't already, uh, subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your your favorite podcasts. And we hope to talk to you soon. Thank you for tuning in, and have a great day.